I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the mess, the busyness and the imperfection of our world. I'm filled with joy at this conversation as not only is it one of the first in a very long time where myself and my guests sit down together in a studio, it was a conversation filled with delight and possibility. M. Carey is known as the girl who fell from the sky. Nine years ago, she was involved in a skydiving accident whilst travelling through Europe falling to the ground over four and a half kilometres, an occurrence that was so rare and the result of a split-second circumstance. This accident left her paralysed and she shares her story and lessons about the pure longing for life that she experienced in the moments before impact, the epiphany and decision to make the most of her circumstance and why she has a tattoo of the date of her accident on her arm. M's story is filled with humanity of someone who's travelled on a path and figuring it out along the way. She shares with compassion almost the sense of guilt mixed with elation at learning to walk again. She highlights the incredible power all of us have to adapt to the circumstances in front of us. Em's story is also shared in her first book, The Girl Who Fell From The Sky. Although, as you'll hear, this is unlikely to be her last book. Warmth, compassion, realness and rawness all come through in this conversation with Emma Carey. Em, it is such a delight to be sitting down face to face in a studio with you. Thanks for having me. I understand that writing and writing a book has always been a desire of yours. Where has that passion for writing come from? Uh, I don't really know where it came from, but for as long as I can remember, even well before my accident, I loved writing and I always wanted to write a book. I always imagined it would be a fiction book (laughs) because I didn't think there would be anything that interesting to write about in my own life. Um, But ever since my accident, I'd been keeping journals, uh, mainly so that I could go back and read about the emotions I was going through at the time because I knew that as time passed, uh, my view on things would change and I would forget the sharpness of certain emotions. And I'm so glad I did that because writing this book with so much hindsight and nine years on, and obviously I remember everything that happened, but it was so great to be able to go and revisit the raw emotions that I'd written at the time. So writing's always been quite a cathartic thing for me. I find that Sometimes I don't know how I'm feeling and then I start writing. And I'm like, oh, that's why I feel that way. Oh, that's what that's what I'm thinking about. And it's just a bit, always been a great way for me to clear my head. So it's so exciting that it came together like this. Such a great way to kind of tap back into it. And as you say, there's something about the act of writing, particularly journaling, where yeah. we do kind of figure it out yeah. along the way. Was journaling ever something you did prior to the accident or was uh, it more something in that depth of experience that you found as an outlet? I used to write poetry more so beforehand, which I guess is a form of journaling, but never as much as I did post-accident because I I guess I had a lot more (laughs) emotions to go through once it had happened. So I found myself being more drawn to it than I was before. We'll obviously come to to the book and unpacking some of the stories, but no doubt having those those journal entries to go back to and, and navigate some of those emotions would have been revealing, but also really... Um, beneficial in terms of being able to to understand those experiences. Talk to me a little bit about uh, your background. Where did you grow up? What kind of things were you interested in as a kid? Uh, so I'm from Canberra and I lived there for 21 years. 
my whole life until I moved here to Queensland. And I, what did I, it's so weird reflecting on life before when I've lived here for so long. I'm like, what were my hobbies before (laughs) there was an ocean right there? Uh, But the main thing I loved was anything to do with sport. So swimming was my main thing. I would train two times a day, every day. Absolutely loved it. I loved running, triathlons, touch, water polo. I just loved all the sports. That was that was my life growing up. I also really loved school. I loved the routine of it, which is weird because I'm very much not a routine person now, but I found it really, I don't know, I just really enjoyed that whole experience. And then once I finished school, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, no idea, which is why I decided to work I think I was working like five jobs at one point, sometimes three of those same jobs in the one day. Like, when did I, when did I sleep? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But I wanted to save up as much money as I could to travel because that was that was such a big passion of mine. That was the only thing I knew for sure that I wanted to do. And obviously you did go and travel and explore Europe. What was it that pulled you aside from kind of adventure and the desire to kind of travel, having worked three jobs in the, in the one day or, you know, in, in that kind of period of time? What were you... What was exciting you about that that um, trip to Europe in particular? I think just experiencing and seeing things that were out of the everyday. My least favourite feeling, even now, is waking up and going to bed and thinking nothing, nothing stood out this day and it feels very much the same as the day before and the day before. And so I always wanted life to feel different, just filled with newness and so... I thought traveling would be a great way to do that. I don't know. I think I just did picked Europe because that seemed like the thing to do <laughs> after school. Everyone kind of had their gap year there. Um, and I just thought it would hopefully lead me on a path to find what I wanted to do once I got back from traveling. How long were you planning on traveling for? I think I had a one-way ticket. So at least three months. Uh, didn't go to plan. <laughs> yeah. So I had my accident only five days into the trip. Wow. Which, I hadn't realized how early... Yeah, which at the time, even though so much, so many serious things were going on, I remember just being mainly devastated <laughs> that the trip was over so soon. All the planning, all, all the, planning. the work, all yep. the savings. Yeah, I was like, oh, what a shame. Yeah. <laughs> that one-way yep. trip turned yep. around yep. Pretty, quickly. pretty quickly. So five days in, made the decision to really embrace this adventure, signed up to go skydiving. Yeah, yeah. Talk me a little bit about that morning. Yes, yeah, so I'd always wanted to skydive I and I always wanted to do it in this particular place once I'd Googled the trip and all the places we were going. I just thought it looked like the most beautiful place in the world. And yeah, I was with my best friend Gemma at the time and she very much did not want to skydive, hates everything like that and I forced her into it. Uh, so luckily she was okay. <laughs> but th- that morning we we woke up and we were part of a tour group and there was only four of us that had decided to go skydiving. And beforehand I thought I'm going to go for a run Um because it was my favourite thing to do. And in a place that beautiful, I thought, why wouldn't I? And then I just was feeling really lazy. I was like, no, nah, I can't be bothered, which is fine. But when it, uh, as we will talk about soon, when the, after the accident happened, I was just like, what, how, how did I not do that thing that I loved so much when I had the opportunity? Um, but so I just, I don't know what I did that morning, a whole lot of nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> really. And then we went to the skydive shop and... Um, met the instructors and I actually chose my instructor because he said who wants to do flips out of the helicopter and I was like that sounds fun I'll do that so that's how I came to choose him and then we got all strapped up and have you done it before 
I haven't. It is on my bucket list. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my 15-year-old this morning as I was kind of prepping and talking to him about coming and chatting with you and he has a fear of heights. And so it is far removed from his anything he wants yeah. to do, but it's absolutely something that I'm keen to do. It yeah. Time. Well, you should. And people mm. always say like that this will deter them from skydiving, but I'm definitely pro skydive. I, I loved the experience so much. When we went up in the helicopter, it was the first time that I'd really thought, oh, okay, this might be <laughs> a dangerous activity. Up until that point, it just didn't even cross my mind. But when I could see how high we were climbing, my adrenaline was just racing and I, I, I just was so excited. And then when we jumped out, the free fall just felt incredible. And I remember feeling so free and so calm, which is not what you would expect when you're plummeting to the ground. And that's very much why I'm still... I, I think everyone should skydive. It was such a it was such an amazing experience, and even though I haven't done it again yet, I think I would like to one day because I remember how much I loved it, and it just I remember I'm sure a lot of people have this thought when they're skydiving for the first time. But as I was falling, I remember thinking I'm going to become a skydiver. This is it. This is <laughs> this is my life calling. This is what I'm going to do with my life. No need for uni. I'm becoming a skydiver. That sense of freedom, yeah. I imagine, that just sense of release and being able to see the world from a different yeah, perspective. Yeah, exactly. As you describing and kind of only just imagine the scenery around Switzerland would have been absolutely yeah. incredible. You didn't know it at the time and I understand that you do have a vivid memory of the entire um, accident that happened and only found out later what actually had occurred and it was a matter of milliseconds or split seconds in terms of it being quite a freak accident. Are you happy to describe what actually happened even though you didn't know it in, at the, at that time? Yeah, so at the time all I knew was that as I said before, the fall was so calming and freeing, but it very much turned to the opposite when we were still plummeting after so long and the ground was getting so close. And I all I knew at the time was that we were going to crash and that something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And after the investigation happened and they spoke to the instructor, uh, they realised that what had happened is essentially there's two backpacks in the... I mean, two parachutes in the backpack... There's the main one which comes out when the instructor pulls it and then there's an emergency one which comes out at a certain altitude if for some reason the main one isn't out yet. It can automatically tell that somehow if you're still going a certain speed. And so my instructor forgot to wear his altimeter, which is what tells you how high you are and at what level to pull the parachute. And so because of that, he pulled ours too late and it came out at the exact same time as the emergency parachute. So they got all tangled, the cords wrapped around his neck and strangled him. And so because he wasn't conscious the whole fall, he couldn't untangle them. He couldn't cut away one parachute. So they just stayed mm. tangled in a ball and we fell really fast. And yeah, with the, the one split second thing, I was told that if it was pulled one second earlier, it just would have opened normally or would be fine. And if it was pulled one second later the emer- the emergency one would have already been up mm. so it would have been fine so it's just a very rare twist of fate that they came out at the exact same time and caused that to happen i don't know if that had ever ever happened before i've never heard of that happening before and neither had the instructor or any skydive person that i know and possibly ever since that that sense of just being in that moment yeah you describe in the book you use the word fear and then say fear is almost a really dull word. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack what was, and, and there's probably not a right word mm-hmm. there, 
Um, but what was going through your mind? Yeah, it's difficult to write about it when we use words for so many other things in life, like fear or pain or awful. All these words were used for so many experiences that are far less than that emotion that I was feeling. So when I was writing the book, I thought, what what other word is there to describe it? Because I'd never felt anything like that emotion before. Um, and it, it just felt like, well, I was certain that I was about to die. I didn't think that there was no doubt in my mind. So it was just that sharp longing for life and um, un, unknown of what was about to happen next. I just kept thinking, what what will being dead feel like? Will I even know that I've died? Is this going to hurt? Um, yeah, I just I was only twenty, so I was just like, I'm I'm too young for this. It was just it was so scary. It just the unknown of it all and the unexpectedness of it all too. Because as I said, I hadn't. I'm sure no one expects a skydiving accident, even if they are cautious of doing it. But I it hadn't even crossed my mind. I just thought, oh, she'll be right. Like off we go. It was so it was so um, rattling to go from this 20-year-old carefree girl travelling the world to a second later plummeting, thinking I was about to die. It was just such a contrast and so hard to wrap my head around. So that's why I said fear is a, fear is a dull word because I'm like, how do, we, how do we use fear for, you know, I fear falling off this chair? Yeah. <laughs> and like, Public speaking. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. And it's just such a different, different emotion. And I imagine the sheer amplification of everything in that moment with time just Mm -hmm. compressing would have been adding to that sensation for you. For sure. Time didn't feel real because it was so fast. I imagine it would only be one or two minutes, but I had so many, so many trains of thought uh, and it felt like I had so long to think, even though at the same time the ground was coming so fast and it didn't feel like enough time. Yeah, it was very, I've never experienced time warping like that. No, it's not something that you can just step away from. Problems are with someone else and come back into yeah. that that sense. Hitting the ground and then realising that you hadn't died, that that you were still um, still alive but had experienced had we had your brain been able to comprehend what had just happened or was it really in the moment um, at that point? I my first thought was just what the fuck (laughs) as if that happened and I was in and again these these few minutes on the ground too a few seconds whatever it was was another time when time warped actually because it would have only been maybe a minute until someone found us but I had so many distinct separate um, streams of thought so the first one was just as if that happened that can't be real that doesn't happen in real life And then the second thing I remember feeling was just the most immense pain. And again, pain doesn't feel like the right word because it was just so all-encompassing and unbearable. I don't even know where I was coming from, but I just remember thinking, I'm sure you can die from pain because this, I can't possibly withstand this for another second. It was so deep. And then the next feeling was uh, I was kind of pinned to the ground. The instructor was on my back. And he still wasn't responding. Um, he survived. But at the time I knew I either thought he was dead or really badly injured. So I thought, okay, it's up to me to go and find help. And so it was in that moment when I was trying to roll to get him off me or try to get up and go and look for someone that I realised I was completely paralysed from the waist down. And it's interesting how even though the second before that the pain was so unbearable when I now had this new realisation that 
I couldn't move. I couldn't walk, which was so far-fetched from what I, you know, what I experienced a minute earlier. I The pain just suddenly didn't matter in relation to this emotional pain. And it's so weird. All these things were happening and I remember having this separate thought thinking what's worse, the physical or emotional pain because I thought the physical was so unbearable but the emotional just completely trumped it so much and yeah there was there was a lot of thoughts going on <laughs> no doubt no doubt and emotions yeah. and and sensations and experiences because yeah. they all get woven into one we mm-hmm. often think the the physical and the emotional are not separate but but as you say the amplification yeah. of that you said it was minutes before someone came and came and found you yeah um, and I understand you were conscious the whole time and even going into the hospital conscious in that whole time. Yeah. Was there a point where you started to understand what what was happening to your body? Uh, well, something that was really confusing was that we were in Switzerland and there was a language barrier. So a lot of the nurses and doctors and paramedics could speak English but not fluently. So I didn't really know what was happening. I didn't know the extent of it. And that was a really scary element of it because I just wanted someone to explain what was going on because, and I didn't even realise that I'd broken my back or the word paraplegic didn't go through my head at all because I just can't explain how confusing it was to be able to have moved something for 20 years and then go to do that movement that we do without a second thought and it not working. It was just so, so confusing. But a few days later, after I'd had two separate surgeries on my back and I also broke my pelvis, um, I was told that I had broken my, well, crushed my spinal cord and that was permanent. And so I would very likely never walk again and need to learn to use a wheelchair. And again, it was just, I think you just go into a state of shock when you hear news, which is so unexpected and so not what you not what you imagined for your life. So for days I was just like this and, and being overseas as well, life just mm. doesn't feel real. So I was constantly like, I don't know what's going on, but <laughs> this all feels very intense and not like real life. And I was just in such a state of shock. And I've got another three months of travel to yeah, go and do. I, oh my, I, even after that, I was like, well, okay, I've got to get to Rome. Yes. So how will I get there? I, I can't, t- now it seems so obvious that I wasn't going. But in my head, I was like, mm. obviously, I'll go catch up with the tour. I'll go to Spain. I'll do all these things. I had no idea of the extent and the seriousness of it, even though it felt very serious at the time. I had no idea of how lengthy this whole thing would be. Do you think if you had have known that would have changed at that point in time or do you think you just needed to know those steps as they came? Yeah, I think sometimes it's more difficult to know the whole journey, even though I – and back on my feet and walking, if someone had have told me back then that everything would be so lifelong and that there would be implications for the rest of my life and that even nine years on I would still be getting upset by certain things or five years on I'd go through a whole other journey with it all, I would have been like, oh, what? Because I think even if I, at that moment, I had thought, okay, If I have to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, that's that. But I didn't realise that the emotional journey of it all would be so ongoing. And I'm glad. Otherwise, that's just too overwhelming to take in at one time. Like I very much was like, okay, today or in this minute, what do I need to do in this minute? And then I'll deal with the next minute when it gets here. Very much one thing at a time. 
which is not a bad reminder and lesson for for any of us. Mm-hmm. But I imagine facing that sheer uncertainty and as you described the the confusion added by a language barrier. I think medicine is a language on its own mm-hmm. that we don't always have an understanding of or a defence of. But you throw in another country, yeah. other side of the world, yeah. uh, family, and those that aren't aren't around yeah. um, into that confusion and that mix, that time. In that moment, aside from, you know, planning, getting getting to Rome and joining up <laughs> with your tour, what other things were kind of going through your mind in terms of what needed to be sorted or organised or in, in terms of what was next that you thought? Yeah, well, the first probably two weeks I – was on such strong pain medication that my mind was just so hazy. Even my memory of that time now is so patchy. And I was just so distraught for those first few weeks, just catching up with what had happened and the confusion of it all. And then after that had kind of settled and the pain killers had worn off and my mind was a bit clearer, I I had this kind of clarity, this kind of epiphany of just accepting what had happened um I just realized that even though I wanted to take the accident back I would have preferred to be traveling I would have um preferred things to go another way there was just no way that that was going to happen so there was no point in constantly just trying to change something when it's literally not possible so I thought that even though I didn't want to be paralyzed I had a choice I could be paralyzed and miserable and regret it for the rest of my life or I could be paralysed and accept that and try to um, create a fulfilling, joyous life in spite of that. And so once I kind of had that epiphany, I I don't know, I felt a lot um, clearer and I also felt so much gratitude in life and I think it was because I was conscious for the fall Uh, which was very traumatic at the time and not a great memory to have. But I think the fact that I was awake for a moment where I realised I was about to die, it was actually really beneficial to me afterwards because even when things were difficult, I still had that really strong knowing of how lucky I was to be alive. And that really helped me to shift my perspective from, oh, my God, I've lost so much, I've lost the use of my body, to oh my God, I got to survive something that surely no human should ever be able to survive. And I don't know why I have, but I'm going to try and make the most of my life anyway, because I'm so, so lucky. That longing for life is not something that many of us, very few probably have have an experience of so close to to the edge of potential death. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting that you, you know, I'm finding that really interesting that that's the thing that you kind of remind yourself in the the uncertainty of what was what was to come for you was there anything that kind of prompted that epiphany or was it more just that clearing of the pain medication and a a sense of sitting with it Mm, I think just a mixture of that and time and having the time to register what had happened because as I said it was all so fast and unexpected that I was just so confused for those first weeks I think just time to realise what had happened and accept that I couldn't take it back. Yeah, but that longing for life during the fall, that it was interesting because even though that seems obvious to think I want to be alive, I don't want to die, I'd never actively thought that before. Pre-accident I was very, I was kind of pessimistic and I was just 
going through the motions of life. I didn't realise I had any control over anything. I just thought whatever happened, happened. And I, I just took every day for granted. And so I was surprised by the longing that I felt. I kind of imagined that I was like, I, if someone had told me that beforehand, I kind of thought I would have been like, oh, well, like. It is what get, it is. It is There's what it is. I guess do. my time's up. But the, I was, it was such a strong longing of like, no, life is amazing. I have so many things to live for and there's so much that I know I haven't experienced yet. And it wasn't even a list of, oh, I want to, I don't know, I, I want to have a family, I want to do this. It, it wasn't a list like that. It was just like I know that there's more to life, more emotions, more sensations, more feelings that I haven't experienced yet and I really want to experience them. Even now as you're kind of describing and talking back that, uh, can you, is that a sensation or a memory that you can tap back into? Yeah, for sure. Back into? Yeah, and I think with the monotony of life I can very easily forget that and get caught up with everyday emotions which is normal but when I actively think about it and remind myself which is why I got the tattoo of the date of the accident because every day after that day is just like extra time and when I remind myself of that which I do frequently I'm just like oh yeah like I very much couldn't have been here in this moment and I'm so lucky to be here and even when I'm going through something and it feels difficult I just think how how lucky am I to get to experience this emotion even if it's a negative one like I get to experience what it is to be a human and all of that is yeah. part of humanity yeah. what prompted you to get the tattoo um I I knew I would get it from probably from that moment in the hospital when I had that epiphany I just always saw the date as something lucky not unlucky and people were like why would you want that date that's such a negative memory to have tattooed but I always saw it as a positive not yeah, I didn't see it as a negative. I just thought, um, bonus, yeah, bonus time. exactly, yeah. One of the stories that you share uh, in the hospital in Switzerland was the the humanity that you were shown by a particular nurse that brought in a yellow wheelie bin. Mm -hmm. what, what did she use the yellow wheelie bin for and, and what did that mean for you? Yeah, so I had been in hospital for a few weeks and I just felt so gross because you can't have a shower when you're paralysed. I couldn't sit up on a shower chair because my abs were paralysed and I would just faint. So in bed, they would just give me like a sponge bath, um, which did the job, but I just felt, I just felt like dirty and I really wanted to get my hair washed and I'd asked a nurse a few days earlier and they were like, yeah, I would love to, but we don't have any time. And also how do we do it when you're laying in bed? And I was like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and then this nurse, Nadia came in one day, um, as a surprise with a wheelie bin and she put the wheelie bin behind my head as like a bucket and then tipped water over my head and, um, washed my hair and gave me a massage and did a braid. And it was just the most beautiful thing because it was something so small. Like when do we ever stop and think, oh, my gosh, I feel so amazing after I've washed my hair and what a special moment that was. It's just such a normal everyday thing. But I realised the importance of all of those little things in a time like that and also how special it is to have someone care for your um insignificant needs like that when there were so many other more serious things going on she was like no you're a human who has um desires like to feel like I have a clean head and that's still important and that still matters so she found a way to make that happen which was it was just so lovely how important is those touches of humanity to a healing process so important I found that I 
I was constantly amazed by so many things that the nurses did and it just gave me such an appreciation for everyone in the medical realm. And something that I think about often is that in our we like I can't remember what I did yesterday, but I can remember every single conversation or interaction I had from that period in my life because when something is that significant in someone's life, we tend to remember all the final all the finer details. And I I was just yeah, all, all the things that were, all the kindness I remember so vividly as well as all of the unkindness. And so something that I try to pass on to people who are nurses or doctors, and most, most people do this so amazingly already, but is the importance of remembering that although to you it's just your Tuesday shift and you've got 50 patients all with the same problem and that person's might not be anywhere near as severe as someone else's, to that person it's their entire life even though to you it's just a five-minute conversation. So to just remember and have compassion and empathy for the patient that you're dealing with uh, because to them it means the world and they will remember it forever likely. And it can have an impact on exactly. their experience yeah. and their impact on others. You got to the point where you were able to come back to Australia, mm-hmm. which was not a small feat to do because at that point in time, I understand, please correct me if I'm wrong, that you were still um, still laying in bed and even getting onto a plane, they had to remove chairs to have you laying yeah. down for the entire flight home. What was the anticipation? What of what was that experience of anticipating coming back to Australia like? Uh, I was really excited to come back because I was excited to speak to doctors who I could just ask any question to without needing to filter to use more basic English words and I was just so excited to yeah find out what was actually happening what my rehab would look like and as well as to see all my family and friends and I I think also in the back of my head I had the idea that going home things would feel normal again because as I said life overseas at the best of times can just feel like it it doesn't really count (laughs) it's whatever goes on overseas just stays overseas and so I think I had the sense subconsciously obviously that when I got home, everything would go back to normal. It'd be fine. I'd go back to work and I'd be able to do my trip again later, which obviously wasn't the case. Going back home actually cemented the the realisation of just how just how serious everything was and how lifelong it all was. But it was good to get home to see, to be around the people um, that I love and have their support. I understand that when you came back to Australia, you were admitted into a spinal ward, which is very much set up for supporting people with spinal injuries. And whilst we might put that into one category, there are so many different variations on um, individuals' experiences of what what that is. Uh, so everything from physio, OT to um, your medical support. Mm-hmm. What was it like being in the spinal ward? In the, in the book you describe, I guess, the experiences of, of meeting other people that were there, things that you kind of learnt, got inspired by, but also just that sense of was almost, as I was reading, it was almost feeling like this is another start again. Yeah. This was, a, this was a, you know, not a continuation on, but, but starting again. Yeah. What, what was your, I guess, experience of when you first started there and then what did it become for you mm-hmm. being, being part of the spinal ward? Yeah, when I first got there, I felt really 
nervous because it's like a it's like a little group everyone in there hangs out with each other so everyone was already friends and me being shy came into this and I was so intimidated by everyone I was like hi guys so I was really nervous in the beginning but I actually loved being in the spine awards so much and I've never heard anyone else say that so I think that that could have been influenced by the fact that I was seeing physical improvements as well which makes my memory of that time a lot fonder than others who didn't experience that but I just loved the the camaraderie of being around all the other patients who were all going through likely the hardest times of their life at the same time. And there was just something really, really special about that because even though friends and family can uh, be there for you and sympathise and be caring, unless someone's going through that same thing, it's kind of hard to relate relate to someone so I actually yeah I really enjoyed the experience and I met so many amazing people and this I every every single person I met and still in the years following that have a spinal cord injury is just like the funniest person I've ever come across and I don't know why if it like instills some kind of humor in you but just everyone was such a legend and yeah it was it was just a very unique experience to to live in there. I love that. Is do you reckon there's something about humor? Oh, definitely. And what what does it do to whether it breaks down connections or it just kind of starts to normalize experiences? Mm, I think that um, you just sometimes need to laugh at things. Like even when things were, I, I was so amazed. Even on the day that my accident happened, in that first hour of the the worst hour of my life, I had still. I still had moments where I laughed and I thought, how special is that? Because up until that moment, I never realised that you could feel two emotions at once in the same hour. Uh, but I think humour is important because people tend to, when you're in hospital or in a wheelchair, treat you so carefully and are so careful to not say the wrong thing and are careful not to yeah, not to offend you. But sometimes, you, like, we don't want to be serious all the time. Just... and you know, when you're experiencing something that crazy, there is some humour and just like, wow, that was wild. Like, how did life go that way? And yeah, I think it's important to be able to laugh about things. Yeah, to be able to kind of break things down and sometimes, yeah, yeah, put put a level of uh, normality or yeah. understanding on it as mm-hmm. well. The body is amazing and remarkable at uh, how it does start to heal and change and yet the the sheer amount of work that needs to be done is massive. Mm-hmm. The physio that is required to learn to sit up again, uh, the process of doing that for seconds and then, you know, taking that, you know, increasing that day by day mm-hmm. um, can be really extraordinary to kind of step into. How did you how did you navigate the incremental progress? Because sometimes when we think about progress, and particularly if you've come from loving sport and, and you know, being a very active kind of person, we we want to make progress quickly. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to, if we want to learn how to run, we want to be able to run 5Ks yeah. in 12 weeks, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the programs yeah. tell us. That's what that does. And yet I can only imagine, certainly what you describe in the book, is it's just such incremental progress mm-hmm. that the ability to be able to keep coming back and having the the motivation uh the desire to keep coming back can be hard at times how did you how did you navigate that and did you ever find it was kind of a bit of an up and down process mm, uh i 
honestly just felt so lucky every any time I got any movement back even when I could wriggle my toe like from the outside that seems like tiny progress but I I just felt so grateful and especially being surrounded by people in the spinal ward and I in the time that I was there anyway I was the only person that got back up on my feet but some people didn't get anything back at all not even movement in their fingers or hands or anything at all and so anytime I had an improvement it just I just felt so so thankful for that and especially yeah it seems it seems that the from the outside it might seem you go from wheelchair to walking but there's so many other things that you can improve on that help in between those stages like strengthening my shoulders could help me get in and out of my wheelchair and into my bed myself which means I wouldn't need someone to help me get to bed each night or being able to get on and off a toilet or into a car so there's so many things that bring you independence besides just the ability to walk so all these tiny little things I which I'd never thought about before but all the physios and OTs were teaching me how valuable they were and just how much it could help improve my future life all these tiny little improvements and yeah I just felt so constantly lucky for it and mainly I I honestly felt guilty because Mm. I was witnessing all these people who weren't having those improvements so I never had the sense of oh I wish I could just run or I wish I could be fully better I almost felt the opposite of like how why why do I get to get better and all these friends of mine don't and I felt guilty being able to just get up on crutches um, while they were there in the same physio ward watching me and not having that same experience. You navigate that incredibly in the book in terms of that kind of compassionate and that it almost wasn't whilst it was the goal to be able to walk again it wasn't the goal like there was a sense where as I was reading it that you would have figured it out if that wasn't your pathway um, but that it was possible Mm -hmm. then that became a pathway to to go down and and I can imagine that sense of guilt being being very real Mm -hmm. um, being in that you know being part of the spinal uh, spinal ward and you know, seeing others that this wasn't going to be a possibility for them. Mm-hmm. What, from a medical point of view, what was it that made that possible? Was it because of the nature of the injury that allowed some of that capacity to come back for you? Yeah, I think so. So in physio, you can only work on the muscles that are working. So, for example, when my abs um before, before my abs started working again, I couldn't strengthen them because there was nothing to strengthen. I couldn't engage it at all. And so once they did kind of, once the nerves, I don't know, reconnected, I don't know what the term is, then I could start strengthening them and that's what I had control over. But what I didn't have control over and what no one does is what muscles will start working again at all. And so people would always say, you know, you're putting so much work into rehab and that's why you're doing amazing, you're so positive, resilient. And which is obviously well intended, but all the people in there were doing the same thing. And I just don't think it's fair to put um, to put any reason on that besides the fact that my the way my spinal cord was damaged just must have somehow enabled those nerves to start working again. Because, yeah, thinking of it in another way kind of indirectly assumes that 
people just aren't trying hard enough mm. if they if they are still in a wheelchair they they didn't put enough time into rehab or they're not positive enough and it's just not it's just not the truth at all so I never I even in my book very much brushed over rehab and certain timelines of when I got better and where I specifically went because I just don't want anyone to think that I have some secret knowledge or some secret cure because I don't I think it just comes down to the way that the way my body was damaged and when when any muscle did regain a flicker of movement I that's what I had control over of then putting in a lot of effort to strengthening that muscle to allow me to walk but yeah it was not not at all any of my choice if that muscle was going to come back at all does that does yeah, make sense totally yeah. it doesn't mean anything else as you yeah say, it doesn't mean that there's any lack of desire or yeah. positivity or anything mm-hmm. beyond that in fact you, and you describe it as kind of almost um being like i being seen as the person was idolizing mm-hmm. idealizing trauma that yeah i could do this and and so therefore kind of um Others could as well, whereas that may not yeah. have been the case. Yeah, a lot of people would say, oh, you should go and talk to other people like in the years following, go talk to people in hospitals so you can give them hope that they could walk again. I'm like, I, w- I hope that I could give people hope that we can get through difficult times and that we're capable of adapting to things, but I never want to, which if someone had told me this back then, I would have thought it was a very neg- negative frame of mind, but I don't want to give hope that people may walk again because it's so individual and so varied and all comes down to the spinal cord like no amount of hoping or resilience can make a spinal cord heal there's not the right doctor there's not the right yeah. physio there's exactly not the right exactly it's not and I'm very much a manifester in life and I use that in a lot of a lot of ways and I think that we can um you know we can believe a lot of things and create those things in life but when it comes to a spinal cord, that's just very physical. You know, you know, I don't, I don't ever, people think, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can do it. I'm like, mm, <laughs> maybe not. Let's do some <laughs> yeah. practicalities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. yeah. The other thing you talk about language and the words like you're really strong, you're really courageous, you're really brave. And some of that, again, the way that you write about it was almost kind of navig- not wanting to dismiss that, but also just going through the day I'm just I have no other choice but then just to turn up to what what I've got in front of me is there other ways that we can other things that people can say or you know other ways of expressing that Mm. differently yeah I don't know and I know that everyone meant very well when they said that and it was very supportive and I do feel like I'm a strong and courageous person now but I definitely didn't the day after my accident when I was laying in hospital, had no idea what was going on, would have much rather been in Rome and not facing this situation where people say you're so strong. I'm like, I'm actually not. I just have no choice but to be in this bed right now. Like there's no part of me that feels that feels strong or is actively doing anything to be strong. I'm just here because here's where I am. And so I yeah, I don't know what would be what would be better. I think just being there for people I don't think we, I don't think we always need words. I think just being there and saying, "I'll I'll be here if you need anything." That sounds like a netball, you know. I'm like here if you need. <laughs> here if you need. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just you know, let me know. Let me know what you need. How can I help you? Um, I'm not going to leave you. I'll be here to listen. Just I think allowing because sometimes when people say you're so strong and brave, that then closes off the avenue for that person to be like. 
I just want to vent about mm. how shit this is. Yep. I don't I don't want to be called strong because I don't feel strong. Let me let me vent. It's okay yeah. to have yeah. a shitty day. It's yeah. okay to have a shitty moment. It's okay yeah. to, that, mm-hmm. that both can be true yeah. at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here if you need, I love it. WA <laughs> <laughs> You also talk about a moment of realizing around like public speaking is something that uh, you weren't wouldn't have been drawn to before no, the accident. Definitely not. Uh, describe yourself as being shy, almost kind of pessimistic in in your words. Mm-hmm. But now sharing your story, speaking to others is something that you do. What's changed? Mm, I still <laughs> I still feel very nervous about public speaking. I love this. I love doing an interview because it feels very natural. But just standing on a stage in front of an audience and talking with no prompts, terrifying to me. And I constantly have the thought of like, what do I possibly have to offer the listeners? And I'm sure that's very common thought that people have. Um, so I don't know how to conquer that. But I, I think um, I, I know that I learned so much from this near-death experience and from living with a disability. And now that I have so many years of hindsight, I I want to be able to share those lessons with people and people can take them on however they want. But yeah, I, I think as humans, we all can learn from each other's stories and experiences. And so I hope that I can share some of that without people needing to have that near-death experience themselves to get to those same realizations um but I still very much feel nervous I don't I don't know if that ever goes away <laughs> <laughs> I think that's good in thinking mm. some ways if if we're apathetic then the, the care about yeah, the conversation true. starts to shift and change in terms of and using that language of someone you know with a disability living living with things that needed need to be adapted for you or to be mindful of um, I think here in Australia we've got a lot more to that conversation, to that level of kind of accessibility um, and to really be okay with stepping into the conversation around mm-hmm. supporting and encouraging and uplifting uh, people with dis- – or normalising probably is a better yeah. word, way of saying that. What – are there things that you think in the way that we talk about disability – here in Australia, I know this is very broad, <laughs> but through your experience and, and what you live with now, that that could feel much more kind of uh, inclusive and inviting hmm. for individuals. Yeah, I don't really know about on a broader scale, but personally and the things that I've noticed individually is just I never wanted to feel like I was being treated differently because I noticed that as soon as I was in a wheelchair – I was people looked at me more with pity and sometimes uh, people were kinder which seems like a lovely thing and a lot of the times it was but also I noticed the difference between when people were pitying me and giving me Mm -hmm. kindness because they thought life had been unkind to me so I needed extra extra of that um so I think just not treating people differently and also something I noticed is that people would assume what I needed rather than asking so for example people would constantly come up and push my wheelchair which is just something you never do unless someone specifically asks for your help because it's like your wheelchair when you're in one becomes a part of your body really Mm. so it'd be like me just coming up to someone walking and just pushing them to be like hurry on (laughs) you just wouldn't do that so I think just just realizing that the person is still a person just like you and we don't need to um be 
like obviously people have different needs but we don't need to baby them and cushion them and just just ask ask what people need instead of assume Mm. yeah really great point one of the things you talk about in the book is the legal process that sat behind Mm -hmm. your accident and like a personal injury claim obviously the the cost of recovery uh and the support that you needed at the time um is all part of that the actual legal process can be counter to that experience of healing and in fact (laughs) i've I really love how you almost described uh, meeting lawyers was like going on first <laughs> dates and you had quite a few of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, talk to me about navigating the start of that process and is there anything that you learnt that might be advice for others who might, this might be something they need to face? Yeah, so pre-accident, and again I was only 20, but I had no idea about personal injury claims at all. So I didn't even stop to think do I definitely want to pursue this? It just seemed obvious that that's what you do because I needed compensation. Um, So, yeah, and and with choosing a lawyer, I was like, oh, yeah, they're roughly kind of all the same. (laughs) I guess I'll just pick one. Um, But it went on for six years and in those six years I learned a lot and I went through a few lawyers. And so if I was starting again, I would definitely be more cautious with who I picked and pick someone who was empathetic and compassionate and someone who treated me as a human not just as a statistic and a you know a folder on their work desk Um, and something else I would say which might sound weird but I I would also advise to be really certain that you want to go through with the claim because as I said I didn't know there was an option not to and obviously I'm really thankful that I had that opportunity because a lot of people have no avenues for compensation for if the accident happened in a different way. But I, yeah, I would say just really think about, um, is in that, in that person's particular circumstance, is it definitely going to be beneficial because there may be a lot of, um, negativity and um time that that goes into getting that compensation so unless it's really really needed and it's going to be a significant amount to make a difference to that person's life then I honestly probably wouldn't go through with it yeah the cost of Mm. the emotional cost of it I was floored by even some of the recommendations from some of the early lawyers you were saying around um, you need to not be so happy you need to not be so well you need to (laughs) yeah as though being happy uh, and being injured couldn't exist at the same time. Mm. So they were like, you being happy makes it seem as though nothing happened. I'm like, okay, what about the fact that I need to use catheters, that I can't walk, that all all of these things, or that I'm yeah, now scared of so many things that I wasn't before. Does that does that mean that I should be negative or uh, yeah, I felt like I was being punished for finding joy in a time that I was really proud to have been able to find joy but it was now frowned upon because it made it seem as though everything was dandy. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. counter to your healing process, yeah. to your, um, yeah, getting getting back in back into the world. Yeah. Yeah, it would have mm-hmm. been tough to, to navigate. One of the things that really struck me in, in reading your book, and it was, it's really beautifully written, not only your experiences, but I guess your insights and your, your thinking along the way, is this sense of our relationship with uncertainty and mm-hmm. not just from the accident. There are a number of points throughout your story where you are kind of faced with a 
uncertainty. Don't really know what's around the corner. Mm -hmm. What has this experience done in terms of your relationship with uncertainty or how you face the unknown that is around the corner? Yeah. um, Before my accident, I didn't think that I was capable of handling hardship or uncertainty. And that's why I was so scared in the beginning, because I thought there's so many people that would be able to handle this situation, but not not me. I didn't feel like I was a strong enough person. And I think after coming through the other side of that, not that there's really the other side, but just going through that and realising I still could feel joy and I still could have an amazing life regardless, it made me trust myself more so that the next time things pop up, even if they're unwanted and I don't want to go through that certain thing, I trust that I will always be okay regardless of what's happening. And the more that you go through that in life, and I don't think that's even a near-death experience thing, that's just a getting older thing. We've just been through COVID and all sorts of levels of uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. And so you just kind of learn to trust yourself more that you're capable of adapting to things that you didn't think you would be able to and that you're capable of, yeah, of things, things don't need to be certain in order for things to be good. And uncertainty can sometimes lead to things that you would have never even dared to dream of because it, because when we're so set on the way we want things to go, we can see all the positive things that are down that road. But sometimes when life goes another way, there's positive things we wouldn't have even contemplated before that we can find. So yeah, it's just about trusting yourself in the process. Doing the next thing, yeah. doing the next step, yeah. knowing that we can adapt yeah. to to what's coming, even if we don't want to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. we can navigate and find the yeah. way. Talk about that process of reconnecting to that sense of joy and happiness. You mentioned before journaling. I know also you picked up um, drawing and, mm-hmm. and doing art. From a practical point of view, what are some of the things that you do even now to tap back into that sense of mental health, knowing that not not every day is sunny or not every moment is? Practically, are there things that are non-negotiable for you? Are there things that you know help you get back into just that sense of self? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's important to note that what works for me isn't going to be the same for every other person. But a lot of my things are are the things that we're always told are what help and they, they really have for me. So even getting outside, getting in nature, just feeling the sun on my skin, just even if it's for five minutes, I feel so much better for it. And obviously it doesn't solve everything, but I just feel at least a tiny bit better than I did before. Or exercise. And it's so funny, I went through like a long period of thinking, I don't want exercise to bring me joy because what about the people who can't move their body at all? Like I don't want to be relying on something that might be able to be taken away from me. Um, but lately I've realised that I'm very lucky to be able to exercise, obviously. So if that if that can bring me joy, then I should embrace that while I can. So, yeah, for me, doing that, whether it's going for a walk or doing Pilates, whatever it is, helps me feel a lot better um even sometimes I'm very introverted so I tend to if I'm feeling down um step away from people and not want to open up to people but even I've noticed just calling a friend and not even to talk about what's going on just to talk to a friend and have a laugh which is the last thing I feel like doing when I'm down actually helps so much 
And that's the thing when in those low moments in life, it's often about forcing you to do the thing that you know will make you feel better, but they're the things you really don't want to do. So the days when I'm in bed and I'm like, oh, I just don't want to get out of bed. Like I can't be bothered doing anything. I will just make myself go. I'll be like, okay, well, I can be laying down still, but I'll just go and lay down outside and force myself to do that even though I don't can't be bothered and I feel so much better for that. So it's kind of learning what works for you and then recognising the moments where you need to force yourself to implement them because, yeah, when you're happy, those things come far more naturally. I'm, I'm sitting here smiling to myself going because I, I know that sensation. You almost kind of enjoy the pity party. In the yeah, moment. Just going, exactly. Don't you know how yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just want to sit in the sadness, which is also fine, but then it's recognising the point where you're like, okay, I've felt the feelings. Let's try and get out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how can I sit in the sadness but in the sunshine? Yeah. I love that. <laughs> just, yeah. just move that to, to somewhere else. Talk to me about the process of writing the book so that, you know, you, you said you'd had, uh, you were journaling throughout your experience and really kind of capturing some of the emotions. Talk to me about the, the process of writing the book. What, um, how did you find that? What kind of helped you to, to tap back into those experiences uh well yeah the whole time I had no idea what I was doing <laughs> I youtubed how to write a book because I had no idea <laughs> what how. does youtube tell us well about the video is like an hour long and I thought <laughs> I could have written the book in that time so I <laughs> I don't know I just I felt honestly until it came out three weeks ago today I didn't believe it would actually come to be I was like I'm not I'm sometimes someone well very often someone who starts a lot of things but doesn't finish them and I truly didn't believe it would actually come together so but the way that I did it is I just wrote each chapter very individually it wasn't in any order I just whatever I was inspired to write about on that particular day I tried to write each chapter as a certain theme or a certain lesson and once I had enough of them then I could kind of put them in order and try to add on parts to make it more of a flowing story rather than just like individual essays um but honestly don't know what I was doing still don't know what I'm doing (laughs) I think sometimes we just got to wing things and hope for the best (laughs) totally totally or do your own YouTube videos exactly (laughs) what's exciting you about what's next now that you can put author next to your name and it is out in the world and congratulations for pulling it together What's exciting you about what's next for you? Um, Well, at the moment, I'm very much still just embracing this. I'm still in the middle of a book tour. And for me, which sounds uh, odd as I am someone who's introverted and shy, but the book tour is something I've always looked forward to. It just seems like very carry off sex in the city. Very fun. (laughs) So I'm just so excited to be able to meet people and, you know, seeing the people with the book in their hand and getting to hear what they got from it. It's just such a rewarding full circle experience for me. So I'm just trying to very much embrace this moment instead of looking forward. Um, But I don't know. I, I love, I love writing so much. So I hope that um, I will be able to write other books, whether it's about my own life or fiction, as I always intended. I, again, I have no idea how to write a fiction book, but there'll be YouTube. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like I was saying before, once you do something once, you trust yourself that you'll be able to figure it out again. So now that the book, which seems something so impossible to do, actually exists, I think going into it next time, I'll be like, OK, it was possible once. I'm sure I can figure it out again. Um, so I don't know that, but I think. For me, anything in life I have kind of just wandered into by going um, going on a certain path in life and things just kind of unfold 
naturally. So I'm hoping that just different opportunities open up and I'll, don't know, I'll, I'll see what, whatever, whatever comes to be. But I'm very much not a planner, which is counterintuitive to a lot of what people say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, and again, even from this conversation, I think that sense of facing what's next seeing possibility but also just facing being where you are and facing what's next yeah and I think after going through something unexpected like I did I kind of have the sense of what's the point in having too many plans when life can change them all so suddenly and maybe that's a trauma response but I also kind of like living that way because I'm open to any possibility rather than having my sights set on one particular road yeah, when a, when a three-month trip to Europe can change, then yeah. anything else can change yeah. in that as well. Em, I've loved this conversation. If I wrap up with one final question, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Oh, um, I think, and this is a way that I try to live, I, I very much never want to do what's expected of me and not even in a rebelling way but I just want to make sure that any decision I make or any path that I choose is because I really want to do it not just because it's what we're assumed to do at a certain age or what what um is the norm to do so I think yeah I think standing out in a way that just feels very um authentic to yourself rather than outside influence I don't know if that answers that question. <laughs> totally answers it. I love it. That sense of not saying yes just because you're expected to. Yeah, to exactly. Do yeah. To check in with you first. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd sign up for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Em. I've loved this conversation. Oh, thank you so much. How incredible is Em's story and her zest for life. I certainly walked away from both our chat and reading her book, which is beautifully written, with a sense of not taking any moment for granted. The Girl Who Fell From The Sky is available now at all good bookstores and I can't encourage you enough to grab a copy. Now, I've got an ask for you. These conversations come to you for free. They are something myself and my team pull together as an act of generosity and deep interest in sharing the stories that we uncover. What helps us to continue to find great stories and share these widely is ratings and reviews. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be incredibly helpful if you could take a moment to rate and leave a review for this podcast so that we can continue to share these conversations to a wider audience. Till next time, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.